My name's Chris Miller. I'm a pastor here at Remedy. Um, go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 6 and go all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 18. So 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 through 18. If you guys go ahead, uh, if you are able, go ahead and stand with us. Um, we stand while reading the Word just as a kind of a bodily example of paying honor that this is this book is not man's book but is from God himself. Second Corinthians 4 verse 6 starts like this. For God who said let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the other things, or sorry, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you may be seated. Let's pray. Father, um, you are glorious, and your glory is our end. Um, it is our chief end, that we enjoy you and glorify you. I pray today that um, your word would be uh, presented to us, and that you would use your word to produce life in us, that you would uh, use your word to call us to Christ, to call us to his holiness, to call us to his goodness, to call us to his love, his mercy, and his grace, and to make us uh, people who um, show and demonstrate that to the world. I pray that you would use this word um, wherever we're at, whatever season of life we're at currently as we come today, that you would use this word to make us consider our neighbor's glory and what cost we are willing to pay for that. To consider the, the worthiness of Christ and the value of Christ and to ask ourselves, what are we willing to suffer for his sake? That you would call us and strengthen us to be willing to pay that cost, the cost of discipleship, the cost of proclaiming uh, this message of reconciliation to the lost. 
Fill us with your spirit and power us to see your word. And anything that I say that's not of your word, let it fall to the wayside and be ignored. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, our community group has been dabbling with a, an app called Operation World. Um, it's, it's actually a book, too. Uh, but basically, it was created um, to uh, every day it gives off either a new country or maybe it's, a it's, it's the same country and it focuses on it for a couple of days. Uh, but it gives you a country. It gives you kind of an update on the status of what's going on in that country and what Christians should be praying toward, what the current status of mission work is in uh, said country. And so uh, two weeks when I was kind of thinking through 2 Corinthians 4 and studying the text a little bit, um, we were on Ecuador, and it reminded me uh, in a, what I would say a timely fashion of a painfully tragic but wonderfully glorious story. Um, and actually, when we were doing 2 Corinthians, um, when David was preaching about the spiritual discipline of giving, um, he actually referenced this story as well. But on January 8th, 1956, five missionaries, or another way of saying that, Paul's way of saying that, as ministers of the New Covenant, were speared to death by several tribesmen belonging to the Waldani in Ecuador. Their names were Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Ed McCauley, and Peter Fleming. Their wives became widows. Their children became fatherless as a result of these five men attempting to proclaim God's glorious gospel of reconciliation to the Waldani, who at this time were on the brink of destruction and basically being eliminated by the, the government um, for, for several reasons. They're a very violent tribe. And then the other, there was some, some business and um, you know, some, econ some economical reasons as well. But they were on the brink of being pushed out and exterminated by the Ecuadorian government. And so these missionaries, they rushed to make contact while there was still time to do so, uh, and they died. Years later, Rachel Saint, this is Nate Saint's sister, and Elizabeth Elliot, Jim, uh, Jim Elliot's widow, and along with some other people, uh, Dayume, or Dayume, which is uh, one of the Waldani uh, women, ran away and actually converted to Christ and lived among some of the Westerners. So uh, this uh, Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot and some others and Dayume, they left, um, they left their, their families, and they went and lived among the Waldani, the people who speared uh, their husbands. Many of the Waldani came to Christ, and so you have this wonderful story of reconciliation. Uh, things like even um, the son of Nate Saint coming to know the man who speared his father and coming to know him as a grandfather, right? So you have all kinds of little stories of reconciliation, but the ultimate reconciliation is put forward that the Waldani were reconciled to God and made right in his sight. Uh, but before there was reconciliation, uh, before there was salvation, uh, before there were churches among the Waldani, uh, there was a cost that was paid. There was blood. Uh, Tertullian, an early church father, famously wrote this, he said, the blood of the martyrs, martyrs just people who die uh, for Christ for the sake of proclaiming his gospel, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And then I might just slightly amend it a bit and say, the suffering of the saints is the seed of the church. When you trace back 
the suffering of the people of God, when you follow the genealogy of suffering, it'll eventually lead you back to Jesus himself, nailed on the cross, suffering on behalf of mankind, suffering the judgment against sin, the abuse of humanity, not because he deserved it, but because he was willing to pay the ultimate price for reconciliation. John Flavel, um, this is a early Puritan, uh, imaginatively writes of a, an eternal conversation that happens between the son and the father when considering the plight of mankind in their sin, in their rebellion against God. He writes an imaginative conversation where the father is talking to the son and the son is talking to the father. And I want to just kind of put that in front of us. Uh, the father says, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And the son answers, O oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all then that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath then they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And the father responds, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And the son responds, Content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing, to me, though it impoverish all my riches, as Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, though Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. The son says, yet I am content to undertake it. So you see, Christ paid the ultimate price for reconciliation on our behalf. On the cross of Christ, justice and love meet, and they actually uh, kiss in perfect balance. All the attributes meet all the attributes of God meet at the cross, and it's because of the cross when we believe in Christ, we can actually look at God and all his attributes, and we can make this statement. All of his attributes are for us. We've been reconciled to him, and he's no longer against us, and we're no longer against him, but he's for us, and we're for him. So our text today is precisely what we've been talking about. It, it is primarily a missionary text, but it speaks to all followers of Jesus as well. It speaks to you. It speaks to me as members of Jesus' body. It speaks to the deacons as servants of the church. It speaks to elders as, as the pastor shepherds of this people. And when I say this is a missionary text, this is what I mean. I'm going to give a, a definition for the word missionary, so because that's a word that people give differing uh, definitions. So I want you to understand when I say missionary, this is what I'm saying. Um, this comes from Andy Johnson. He defines a missionary as this. Someone identified and sent out by the local church or local churches to make the gospel known and to gather, serve, and strengthen local churches across ethnic, linguistic, or geographic, or and or, geographic divides. And so Paul fits this bill perfectly. So let me, let me show you this. 
He is identified and called first by Christ, right, in the road to Damascus. But later on, it's a church. It's the church of Antioch that sends him out in Acts 13, 1 through 3. The Holy Spirit instructs the church uh, to send out Barnabas and Saul. And in verse 3, it says this. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. He was sent out around 49 A.D., and then three years or two-ish years, 51, 52 A.D., he comes to, that was a pop, he comes to Corinth. So this very city that this letter is written to. He comes to Corinth, and he preaches the gospel, and he plants a church. Acts 18, 5 through 11. Pause. All right, here we go. Hopefully that'll fix it. Acts uh, 18, 5 through 11 says this. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when, they and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to him, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles, uh, the Greek word for nations. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to a synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, but I am w for I am with you, and no one will attack you uh, to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God from among them. And so Paul was sent out by his local church. He then went to Corinth. He proclaimed the gospel. People believed. They were baptized into a local church, meaning there was no local church. He gathered the believers together. There now was a local church. And then in this letter that we're looking at today, he's actually writing to strengthen or care for the local church. So in the sense that I say missionary, and this is a missionary text, that's what I mean. Paul is a missionary, and he's working with... Um, Several missionaries, uh, let's see, I wrote them down. Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, and Timothy are just four that we know. Um, so he's got a team. Uh, so you might be thinking, I'm not a missionary, so what does this have to do with me? Uh, nor do I want to be, so what does this have to do with me? Uh, so let me put it this way. First, it's our duty as the local church to always be considering what God would have us do, both personally and communally. Notice it was the church who heard the Holy Spirit and set Paul and Barnabas apart. And if they wouldn't have, Corinth would not have had a church. Are we praying for the people in this church to be sent out? Are we praying to God and asking is, and considering, is God calling us perhaps to go and, and be sent out? Um, so first, we're called to pray for one another and pray for the Lord's work in our hearts to call up and raise up missionaries. Secondly, Christians at every level are called to make disciples. So even if you're not a missionary going on missions, we're all called to evangelize. We're all called to disciple. And this is the overarching mission of God. So if you think of it like this, you've got mission of God, right, to make disciples of all the nations. We're all participating in that as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And then under that umbrella, there's also particular people who are missionaries going on missions. They're going out and they're planting churches or they're going out to people who don't have the gospel. So, so secondly, we're all called to be a part of this. And though the cost might be less for us 
than it was for Paul, as he describes in this passage. There's a cost for reconciliation nonetheless. There's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to evangelism. And I want us to consider that. So here's three things, and then we're going to jump in full-fledged into the text. Three things to consider as we go through it. Ask God. Ask yourself. Is God calling me to be a missionary? If there's any aspiration whatsoever, listen well to the words of Paul because this will inevitably be the cost of being a missionary. If you are looking to go into missions, this sermon is directly for you. And please let the elders know also of these aspirations so that we can, like the Church of Antioch, be praying and fasting on your behalf. Second, if you're actively engaged in ministry of some kind, maybe you're a pastor, maybe you're a deacon, or maybe you, you, you work for a Christian school, or you're, you're in some kind of like active uh, aim of ministry, this sermon is also for you. Consider the example of Paul and the extreme sufferings he was willing to endure for the sake of spreading reconciliation to the people. So this sermon is for you. And then third, if you call yourself a Christian, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then ask yourself this question, what price am I willing to pay for my neighbor's glory? What price am I willing to pay to see men and women in remedy discipled? What price am I willing to pay to see um, the gospel salvation proclaimed to the lost? How much time am I willing to give up? How much ridicule, embarrassment, or just uncomfort, right? It's just uncomfortable. How much of that am I willing to share or to endure for the sake of others? How much pain am I willing to take? Uh, So Paul's example here is what uh, commentator Mark Seifert said. He called it this. It's believing existence written large. So even though we might not see some of the things that Paul saw, some of the sufferings that he suffered as a missionary, we will see these things maybe on a smaller scale. It's believing existence written large. So today, as we look at this text, let's consider this cost, the cost of glory. So our first point is this. We're going to answer a question. Why do missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation? So the first question, or the first point, and it's got four subpoints, but my second point only has none, and that's it. So it's a five-point sermon. The first question is, why do missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation? And this is coming to us from the main part of the text, verses 6 through 15. And so uh, just to kind of, we're going to look at four different ways, four different things that Paul seeks to answer that question. So there's a cost. We must all pay it. Jesus showed it in his life. Paul is now turning a light on his own missionary team, and he's shining a light on what they had suffered for the sake of the Corinthian believers. And in verses 16, 6 through 15, we're going to see four in order that statements. So in the Greek, it's a word, it's called henna. It's just one word, and it means because of or in order that. And throughout 6 through 15, there's four henna statements. And each time, Paul is showing a different uh, side to the answer of why do missionaries and Christians suffer. And so our first in order that statement, subpoint A, missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation. And by the way, every time I'm going to say, missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation in order that, dot, 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 and that second part is going to be the different point. So you don't have to write that every time. 
So missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation in order that God's power might be displayed in their weakness. So they suffer, why? Because in order that God's power might be displayed in their weakness. And so we're going to look at verses 6 through 7 to see this. Uh, In verse 7, Paul writes this, But we have this treasure in jars to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And again, just as a quick side note, the us and the we of the first part of this passage is referring to Paul and his missionary team. However, once we get toward the end of this passage in verses 16 on and through 5, 1 through 10, which we're not going to, the us and the we transform to include the Corinthian believers as well. Um, So just be looking for that. So our first in order that statement, which the ESV translates as to show, right? So in order that uh, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. Paul tells his Corinthian readers and us that the reason for his weakness and the plainness of his speech and the humility of his life is to demonstrate that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to him. We are weak so that the power of the gospel cannot be confusedly attributed to us. We appear in weakness before others, not so, you know, because God delights in our weakness, but because God wants to demonstrate himself powerfully through us. And the people look at us and they say, that didn't come from you. You're weak. That must have come from somewhere else. And then they ask the question, where did it come from? And then you give the ministry of reconciliation, the gospel, right? Uh, So, Uh, We are weak, so the power of the gospel cannot be confusedly attributed to us. So there's two elements to observe from verse 7. First, the phrase, this treasure. And second, the phrase, jars of clay. So what is this treasure? Uh, This is alluding back uh, to Paul's previous statement in verse 6, which is why we included it in our reading of Scripture today. Verse verse 6 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what is this treasure that we're talking about? Well, if you want to know what this treasure is, you need to go back to last week's sermon and listen to it because Paul talked, or Paul, (laughs) Fudd talked about it uh, last week's sermon, and Paul. Um, And it is the greatest news of the good news is the way that Fudd put it. It's the greatest news of the good news, namely that Jesus reconciles us to God. We get, in some sense, God. He is the greatest news of the good news. And so what is this treasure we have in clay? Uh, We have this this gospel that is reconciling us and building us and bringing us closer and closer and eventually is going to deliver us to God in his fullness. And we will be able to stand before him. So that's this this treasure that Paul talks about in verse 7. So God in a miracle compared to his creating power in Genesis 1 has done a work in your heart if you believe in Jesus Christ. And we have seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So a Christian is one who sees the death of Christ, and in that death he actually beholds the very glory of God and the power of God. And so what about this uh, second thing, the, the clay, you know, the jars of clay? So Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. This is so typical of who God is, Old Testament to New Testament. God oftentimes, um, so let me read it this way. 
Uh, God clothes his power in weakness, his strength in humility, the nature of a lion in that of a lamb. Right? So we see this kind of all throughout the Old Testament, this concept of weakness, but yet God making himself known in power. And that's what the, jar, the jars of clay is supposed to say of us. These are earthen vessels that are quite common, quite expendable, and quite fragile. They're common, they're expendable, and they're fragile. So uh, to, to kind of picture this a little bit better, um, in Varanasi, India, that's a city in northern India, um, I, I had the privilege of visiting that one time in the summer, and... Um, in every street corner, there was a chai vendor. And so when you say chai tea, I just want you to know that you're actually saying tea tea. And that's just silly. So just say chai. Chai just means tea. So um, there's chai vendors all around in the, the corners of uh, the streets. And all the old men and young men alike will go to these, and, and women too, will go to these guys. They'll give them a coin, and then they'll get this little clay cup. It's like a little, I mean, it's, it's just a small little sip and it'll be filled with chai. And the men will drink it, and then they'll throw it on the ground, it'll crash on the ground, and then you know, people are just kind of going about their normal business. And, that, and that's normal. Um, why? Well, because it's common. It's easy to make those clay cups. They're fragile, and they're expendable, right? And that's what Paul wants us to picture here. We are the cup, and the glory of God is the treasure. Why not uh, put it into a cup of gold, you might ask? Well, we'll get, that, we'll get to that eventually, but for now, it is so that his power will be seen and that it will be clearly recognized as being his and not ours. So missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation in order that God's power might be displayed in our weakness. So our second in order that statement, uh, point B, missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation in order that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies in order that the life of Jesus may also be manifested, which just means revealed, in our bodies. And this is verses 8 through 10. And so there's going to be kind of four contrasting uh, word pairs in verses 8 and 9. And then verse 10 is going to give a, a kind of big summary of those contrasting word pairs. So verse 8 says this, We are afflicted in every way, contrasted with, but not crushed. We're perplexed but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And so again, just to put that really quickly in front of us, the first pair, afflicted, not crushed. Perplexed, not driven to despair. Literally in the Greek, what uh, perplexed and not driven to despair literally says, it says, confused, but not too confused. <laughs> so it's talking about confusion. Uh, third thing, persecuted, but not forsaken. And the fourth thing, struck down, but not destroyed. Uh, Richard Bauckham, um, who did a lot of works for uh, contextualization, being able to communicate the gospel clearly in a foreign culture, uh, he describes and warns anyone who would take up this work of reconciliation by saying this, even without the physical dangers of Paul's career, Anyone who throws himself into the work of Christian ministry of any kind with half the dedication of Paul will experience the weakness of which Paul speaks, the times when problems seem insoluble, the times of weariness from sheer overwork, the times of depression when there seem to be no results. And so again, the question remains, why? Why does God allow this? And why is Paul even teaching that this seems to be 
the job description of the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, what, why is that? Verse 10 gives us Paul's answer, one of Paul's answers. His interpretive lens by which he views all the sufferings uh, for the sake of Christ. He says this, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, in order that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So on one side of suffering, we see death. But on the other side, we see the relief, the resurrection. So on one side, we see the death of Jesus. On the other side, we see the resurrection for which Paul hopes. Uh, so when we proclaim the glory of God in the face of Christ to others, uh, we need to go ahead and accept the fact that we will always be carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that his life would be uh, manifested. Uh, Romans 8 says it this way, that uh, we will be glorified with him provided we are willing to suffer with him. So we'll be glorified provided we're willing to suffer. That's Romans 8. Uh, Jesus' death led to Jesus' resurrection, and our carrying his death leads to his resurrecting life through us. The strength and power and life of God will be revealed once again in our weakness. Uh, I want to remind us, maybe you've heard this quote. If not, it's a good quote. This is from The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed uh, during Hitler's regime for being essentially a Christian. Um, he famously wrote this in his book entitled The Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To which we could actually, you know, Bonhoeffer actually literally died. But we might also add this to his statement. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die so that he might have the life of Christ manifested in his body. So why do missionaries suffer? Missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation in order that the life of Jesus may be revealed in their body. And so we're going to look at our third in order that statement. This is uh, point C. Missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation in order that the life of Jesus may work in us and work in our neighbor. So this time it's in order that Jesus, the life of Jesus may work in us and work in our neighbor. And this is coming from verses 11 through 12. Uh, when we, we find our third in order, at, in order that statement in verse 11, and it seems just about identical to our second one um, from verse 10. Paul writes this, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, in order that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It looks exactly the same. Substitute the, the word mortal flesh with body, and it is exactly the same. Um, so we're always given over so that Jesus' life might be revealed in our mortal flesh. Mortal flesh is not to be contrasted with bodies. It's literally synonymous with bodies. But I do want to point out two things about the word mortal. First, I think Paul's holding out the hope that even now, in your mortality, Jesus can reveal his life through you, even now, not just like when you're glorified and in heaven, but even now, Jesus can reveal the power of his resurrection through your mortal body. Uh, but secondly, he's also foreshadowing about the later passages in verse 16 through 18, which discuss mortality and eternity and, and some of those weighty things. And so we'll look at that a little bit later. Um, so I want us to look at verse 12, which gives us a little bit of a nuance, because 
If, if verse 12 is not here, verse 11 literally says the same thing. Why do we suffer? In order that Jesus might be revealed through us. But verse 12 gives us great hope. It gives us an, another nuance. Uh, it sets verse 11 apart, and he writes this. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Death is at work in us, the missionary team, but life in you, the Corinthians. And I don't know if you see that, but when you suffer for the sake of Christ, you show forth the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And when we're willing to do that, it can actually produce the life of Jesus in the ones we're suffering for, not just merely us. The glory of God can pass to our neighbors if we're willing to suffer for their sake. It's not a guarantee, but here Paul says, death is at work in us, my missionary team, but life is at work in you. So this gives you some of the purpose for why Paul is willing to suffer. It's not the only purpose, but it's one of the purposes. It's because he knows that in all these hardships, God will use these hardships to render life to his hearers. And so um, it's for our neighbor's glory as well. So the life of Christ can work in those we're discipling and those we're evangelizing. They too can glimpse a fraction of God's glory in the face of Christ. Why? Because we're willing to die for their sakes. We're willing to die in order to proclaim the good news to our neighbors. Uh, this is why missionaries and Christians must be willing to pay the cross. This is one reason. So this is our, our third point, or third in order of that statement. Uh, missionaries and Christians suffer in the ministry of reconciliation so that the life of Jesus may work in us and work in our neighbor. And our fourth and final one to answer this question, why, why, why do missionaries suffer? Why do Christians suffer uh, in the ministry of reconciliation? Our fourth point is this. Missionaries and Christians suffer in this work in order that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase to thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, Fudd made fun of me because my points are too long, um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to show you that that's literally what the, the, the Bible says, so I just want to keep that there. I, I resisted making it shorter. In order that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And this is verses 13 uh, through 15. Uh, so let's start with 13 and 14. In 13 and 14, Paul quotes and applies Psalm 116, verse 10. So if you're wondering, like, that little quotation mark in your Bibles in verse uh, 13, he's quoting Psalm 116, verse 10. And then he's turning it on its head and saying, that psalm equally applies to us, my missionary team, just like that psalm said they believe, so they've spoken, we also have believed, and so we also have spoken. Um, and he has in, in range, if you read the psalm, it's very clear that Paul chose this psalm because it very much reflects this, this topic that we have at hand, this topic of death, being given over to death, but also seeing resurrection, this topic of proclaiming before the peoples the glory of God. Um, so all this, this psalm... Um, it very much reflects uh, the Corinthian readers um, here. So I wanted to read for you all uh, a second half of the psalm, Psalm 116, 8 through 9, so you can kind of see that. Uh, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Resurrection right there. And this is the, the quote. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted, 
I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. And that last one is literally the the Hebrew word hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh. So he ends with hallelujah. So you can see why Paul chose this psalm. It smells of death. It, It smells of martyrdom. It smells of resurrection. It smells of proclaiming God's glory to people. And ultimately, it ends in worship of God. So that phrase uh, in verse 14, having the same faith. It it could be talking about sharing in the the same Holy Spirit that David had when he wrote Psalm 116. uh, Or it could be just saying essentially that uh, the same faith that David had in the midst of suffering, Paul is now himself partaking in. Uh, Either way, uh, it, it, still, it still has kind of the same effect. Um, Paul has believed the message of Christ and the hope that comes with his resurrection, so he has spoken the message. He believed the message, so he speaks the message. That's, that's what the bottom line is. So now Paul speaks here in the presence of the Corinthians, the presence of, all his, of God's people, and, and he says this, just like in Acts 18, verse 14 he then brings the Corinthians directly into his view. He starts to merge that we and us, and it becomes Paul, his missionary team, and the Corinthians. Verse 14, he says this, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul knows that his suffering and his dying will be honored by God and will result in his resurrection and also the resurrection of the Corinthians. And they'll be not only reconciled to God, but they'll be brought together with God in his presence. So I ask these questions to myself and to everyone. What kind of presence will it be? Will God be angry? Will God be merciful? Will we shudder in fear? Or will we sing? The psalm in Paul's writing naturally leads us to verse 15. And our fourth and final in order that statement. Verse 15 says this. So as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We shall come into the presence of Yahweh with thanksgiving, with a hallelujah, just like the psalm ends. Piper says it this way uh, about missions, and this is Paul's point here. Missions exist because worship doesn't. There will be no more missions when all the people of God worship God. Missions only exist to bring about worship to God. The aim of missionaries and the aim of Christians should be to invite as many people into the worship of God as possible. Jesus alone makes worshiping God possible, the message of reconciliation that we've been talking about. Uh, John MacArthur says it this way. It's kind of a lengthy quote, but it's good. Um, Paul's goal was never his own comfort, reputation, or popularity, nor was it ultimately the salvation of others. 
the final goal of Paul's selfless sacrificial service was that more voices would be added to the hallelujah chorus of praise and worship of God. The Lord's servants bathe their hearts and souls in the light of God's glory reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. They then selflessly reflect that majestic glory to others so that they can be saved and worship God. In the words of Daniel 12.3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Amen. And so that's, our, that's, that's answering our fourth, uh, that's our fourth answer to the question, why do missionaries and why do Christians suffer? It's so that more and more people will hear about grace that will then turn into thanksgiving and ultimately to the glory of God, the worship of our God. The second part of our text, verses 16 through 18, is now, okay, we see kind of why the suffering but now he wants us to consider what the suffering itself is producing in us. What, you know, yeah, we got the why, the suffering, but what is God also doing? Why is it worth it, right? I mean, those things, I think, are pretty compelling to make it worth it already, but Paul's going to go a step further and focus in a little bit more. And so the second one, the second point and final point is more of a, a call to us. It's not, it's not a question. Missionary and Christian, do not lose heart. Your suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory, provided you keep your eyes upon Christ, who is unseen. Your suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory, provided you keep your eyes upon Christ, who is unseen. So after arriving at the glory of God, Paul immediately turns in verses 16 through 18, and he wants us to explore this glory and look at its value. Paul writes, so we do not lose heart, Though our outer self, and by the way, you might have heard me read that as outer man. That's because in Greek, it's anthropos, it's man. And so I'm going to read it as man. Outer man is wasting away. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. So our outer man is being wasted away. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul starts us off by talking about the outer and the inner man. Um, and I, I want, I want to just make a, this is kind of a side note, um, but Mark Seifried, a commentator on 2 Corinthians, pointed this out, uh, that Paul is not distinguishing between, like, the invisible ideas or soul of man and the outward body, physical presence of man. That's not the way that we should read that um, text. So he says it this way, and this might be a, a tad philosophical, I'm sorry. Paul does not juxtapose differing parts of the human being, the reason and the animal impulses or the body, as did Plato. But paradoxically, he's contrasting two whole human beings, the outer and the inner. This is possible for him because he does not draw a contrast between the material world and the invisible world of ideas, but between the present age and the age that is to come, the resurrection. The, other, the outer human belongs to the former, the present age. The inner human belongs to the latter, the resurrection. Both are irreducibly material. So I, I bring that up, and you might be like, okay, why? Why did you just make me suffer that? Uh, I bring that up because a lot of times we get this kind of picture of like, oh, we have like this inner invisible person, our inner soul, the inner good. No, no, no. As man, both our soul and our body, we are wicked before the Lord, and we are in rebellion. 
And the work that Christ initiated through that glimpse of glory in his face is a whole new man, a whole new creation. It's not just like your soul's being reformed, your body will also be reformed. You will have a bodily resurrection, not merely a, a soul resurrection, so to speak. I'll say it in Paul's words elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 5, 4. For while we are still in this tent, the older man, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44, talking about the resurrection body. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That we, when we come into the presence with Paul and with the Corinthians, when we come into the presence of God, we're not just coming as souls, but we're coming as bodies as well. We're coming as complete human beings in the presence of God. That's what the message of reconciliation will bring about. So why should we not lose heart? Because that's Paul's point. Don't lose heart. Verse 17, he says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So God is using suffering in this kind to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory, provided we look to the things that are unseen and I wanted to take a quick side note to talk about suffering just briefly. Uh, th there's kind of, in this particular text, he's talking about suffering as a missionary, or suffering as preaching the gospel for the sake of Christ, right? And, and that leads to the weight of glory. But that's not the only kind of suffering that Paul would also say leads to the weight of glory. Um, in Ephesians 5, 22, uh, 22 through 24, he brings up the new man and the old man again. And in this case, it's the context of in the church being sanctified, putting to death sin, putting off the old man, and bringing to life Christ, right? Putting on the new man. And so our personal sanctification is also part of the call to suffer, to die to self, right? That's also part of the call that he's going to use to build up into the weight of glory. And then also general suffering that all the world can feel, whether Christian or non-Christian, right? Death, disease, th the likes. All general suffering also can be used to produce the weight of glory in us if, in thanksgiving, we suffer for God's sake. And so let me give an example of this. Um, I, I asked permission of one of my high school students who, um, you know, we've been praying for him in our prayer things. He, he has brain cancer, and... Um, he has used brain cancer as literally a foundational uh, springboard to just talk about Jesus with everyone. Um, just talk about Jesus with everyone. And even the other day, we had a, a student council meeting, and um, all the student leaders, and he's a student leader for next year, and uh, even suffering got brought up, and then he talked about suffering through cancer and chemo and, and all that. Um, and the thing that he said was, you know, in a sense, I am honored to suffer. Why? Because Christ himself also suffered. And so he has used general suffering for a platform to proclaim the ministry of reconciliation, the gospel, the good news. And so that kind of suffering, uh, when we use it that way, also 
creates for us this, this weight of glory. So let's look at 16, 18 a little bit more. There's some contrasts. Wasting the inner man is contrasted with renewed day by day, the inner, the inner uh, man. The outer man is wasting, the inner man is being renewed. Affliction is called light and momentary. Yet our glory is called weighty and eternal. Paul's using all kinds of wordplay here. The Hebrew word for glory also means weight, and he knows that. So when he calls glory weighty, he's trying to, he's trying to show you something that, uh, you know, it's not like salvation is we're just losing substance, the substance of our sin, but rather we're adding on something that's even heavier than sin. We're adding on God's glory. Um, so, so he uses those kind of words uh, to say this. So in a word, um, we're not, we're not being, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, glory is not a lack of sin or suffering or lack of substance, but rather it is thought of as being more substantial, or as Paul said, we're putting it on so that death may be swallowed up into life, or mortality be swallowed into life. Glory is a weighty thing. It is not merely pulling off sin as if it's the heaviest thing on the universe, but rather God's presence is the heaviest thing on the universe. And one day we will stand in his presence and be able to bear that weight. And I want to remind us, Moses had to be hidden in a cleft of a rock and had to have God's hand cover him in order just to glimpse the back, if you can imagine it that way, the back of God's glory. Isaiah, when he saw his heavenly vision, he literally stated, woe, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips in the midst of a generation of unclean lips. He, undone literally means I am extinguished, I am about to be eliminated, exterminated, gone, right? Ezekiel, when he sees the glory of God in chapter 1 through 2, he falls down as if dead. God tells him to get up and stand up. He doesn't stand up. He just stays dead. And then it says God's spirit fills him and causes him to stand up, right? Uh, Peter, when, um, you know, Jesus is like, cast your net over there, and he catches a bunch of uh, uh, fish. Peter literally looks at Jesus. He glimpses that glory for a second, and he says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinner, so, uh, so, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, they told a little lie, right? They lied about what they were giving. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were struck down dead, right? God's presence is weighty, and in our current state of sinfulness, we would be utterly destroyed. And so don't miss what Paul's saying here. Through the gospel, the message of reconciliation we will be made to be able to stand in his presence and not have to be in a cleft of a rock and covered up. Provided we look to the things that are unseen and not the things that are seen. So our suffering is producing this weight of glory provided we keep our eyes upon the face of Christ where the glory of God is revealed. So I want to conclude um, the story of the missionaries that we talked about at the beginning. And I want to leave a C.S. Lewis quote he did a sermon literally called The Weight of Glory, and you cannot not quote that during this passage. Um, so I want to quote that. Uh, so what happened when Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Ed McCauley, and Peter Fleming were killed by the Waldani? One of the Waldani women, um, who was present at their actual deaths, told this to Steve Saint, the son of um, Nate Saint. 
Steve wrote this in an article, which then was produced into another article in Christianity Today called, Did They Have to Die? And this is what uh, his testimony of her, uh, what she said to him. She also told me that after the killing, she saw the coyote, which is their word for spirits, above the trees singing. She didn't know what this kind of music was until she later heard records of Aunt Rachel's and became familiar with the sound of a choir. Min Kanyanye and Kimo confirmed, those are two men that were part of the actual killing, um, confirmed that they heard the singing and saw what Dawa, this woman, seems to be described as angels along the ridge of Palm Beach. Another guy, uh, Duvui, who is, uh, I'm probably butchering that name, uh, verified hearing the strange music, but he described it, what he saw more like lights moving around and shining, a sky full of jungle beetles, similar to fireflies, with a light that is brighter and doesn't blink. And then uh, Nate Saint continues, or um, Steve Saint continues. Apparently all the participants saw this, this bright multitude in the sky and felt that they should be scared because they knew something, this was supernatural, and their only understanding of supernatural, uh, the spiritual world, was one of fear. Dawa said that this supernatural experience was one thing that drew her to God when she later heard of him from Deume, uh, the, the long-lost sister who came to Christ. So literally, these Waldani murderers saw God's glory as they were killing his saints. Murderers became saints. And not only were they reconciled to God, they were reconciled to the widows and fatherless children of the men they speared. Did they have to die? Nick Saint writes of his dad and his fellow martyrs, the answer is yes. And so do we if we want to see God's glory spread among the nations. And so let's feel that weight, the weight of our neighbor's glory. And let me just conclude with uh, C.S. Lewis on 2 Corinthians 4. And he catches the missionary thrust of this passage. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be daily laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, which is his way of saying a society of possible glorified beings, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. So here's the call of God's word to us and, to, and the questions that I've been asking myself and I would ask you to ask yourselves. How much are we willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? And how much are we willing to suffer for our neighbor's glory? Let's pray. Father, I am uh, incredibly small. And um, in light of the examples of these missionaries in Ecuador, uh, in light of the example of Paul, ultimately extremely small in light of Christ himself. Um, I'm weak and unable 
to carry out this hard call from your word. And yet, this very word um, assures us that you work powerfully through those who are weak. And so I pray that we would uh, embrace our weaknesses, embrace our discomforts, embrace um, giving up time, whatever it, it, it costs us, Lord, that we would embrace it, that our neighbor might glimpse this glory. Why? Ultimately so that more and more people, as they're touched by your grace, Lord, they get they convert that into thanksgiving to you, and you're glorified. Uh, bring more people in, Lord. Um, I pray uh, that you would use uh, your word to call out missionaries, whether it's from us or from other churches. Uh, use your word to call us as just regular followers of Jesus to consider the weight of our neighbor's glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.